Hey, welcome to week number two of our Book of James series. I want to thank the studio audience for joining me tonight. We're going to look at growth in suffering. I'm going to dive right into it tonight because we're looking at the first half of chapter one of the Book of James. And honestly, this is five messages that I'm trying to condense into 30 minutes. There's a lot of content here, and I just want to dive right into it tonight. Verse two, we looked at verse one last week. Verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What James is saying here is that trials or suffering is inevitable. It's not a question of if I suffer, it's a question of when I suffer, whenever you Go through various trials, James says. But here's the thing. Suffering is a test of our faith. It tests our faith. You know, as a pastor, I hear many stories of people, friends, family, different people, and, they, and the story goes something like this. My, my loved one or my friend or my family member, they were a Christian at one time, but they went through suffering. They went through a tragedy. They went through something really, really bad, and they just don't follow God anymore. For whatever reason, this, this, this trauma, this suffering, this trial brought them away from God, and they're not a Christian anymore. They don't have faith anymore. You see, what suffering does, if you really look at it, is it judges whether our faith is real or not. In other words, suffering does not destroy our faith. Suffering has never destroyed anybody's faith. What it does is it reveals our faith. All it does is show where your faith was. You see, if you fall away from God during suffering, your faith wasn't in God. Your faith was in sand, sinking sand. And when that storm of life came, it washed away your house. Here's the truth about life that we live in, that all of us live in, whether we're followers of Christ or whether we're not followers of Christ. Anything bad that can happen to any human being on earth can happen to a Christian. Being a Christian does not make you immune to suffering. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're never going to have to go through trials, and you're never going to have to go through hardship, and you're never going to have to go through hard times. In fact, Jesus said quite the opposite. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, then suffering is going to be inevitable. So when you suffer as a Christian, you should expect it. We should not be surprised when we go through trials. We should not be surprised as a follower of Jesus when you suffer. So many people say, well, I shouldn't have to suffer. I have faith. I'm a Christian. And I always wonder, what you're saying is that somehow you're better than Jesus? The Bible says Jesus suffered worse than any man on earth. Are we saying that somehow we're better than him, that, that Jesus, our Lord, suffered, that we shouldn't have to suffer? In other words, does the universe owe you a better life than Jesus? But the real root of our problem when it comes to suffering is we live in American society. And the, the, the truth about our culture, this Western world, this modern mentality, is we are, we are the worst generation, the worst culture in history to help people deal with suffering. Because we, we have this, this thought, this, this assumption that we should not have to suffer. And if you suffer, if you're uncomfortable at all, you need to sue. 
Like, like if you're uncomfortable, somebody else made a mistake, and you need to sue that person because you should never have to suffer in this life, the life that we live. But you know, in ancient times, almost every ancient people believed that the world that we live in, the life that we live, is short and it's brutal. And so what you have to do is you have to make the most out of this life so that you can better your position in the next life. It's only this modern world that we live in that somehow believes this is all there is, and so you've got to make the most out of it now. You see, we live in a, 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 let me just say it honestly, we have a crybaby generation. We're the snowflakes, right? Like we, We should never feel uncomfortable. So what James is saying here might actually be more important for our generation and culture than the original hearers themselves. So let me get into my first point with you. If you're following with the message notes or the small group notes, here's the first point. Suffering produces maturity. Suffering makes you a mature follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, you cannot become a mature follower of Jesus Christ without suffering. And I'm going to show you that. So how does it work? First, what suffering does to mature you is it gives you a new perspective. Remember the word consider? James says, consider it pure joy. See, what James says is not that you should be happy about it. There is nothing happy about suffering. And let me be absolutely clear. God does not cause the suffering. God does not give people disease. God does not give people cancer. God does not kill people's children or cause automobile accidents on the freeway. God does not cause suffering. The world that we live in, the life that we live in is what causes suffering, but God will absolutely use the suffering that life dishes your way to help you mature and to perfect you in your faith. So James says you've got to consider it pure joy. It's not pure joy. It's hell. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. But he says consider it pure joy. Get a different perspective. In other words, consider the result. Here's what suffering can do. Suffering can turbocharge the ordinary process of Christian growth. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Look at Paul's perspective. For our light and momentary trouble, if you know anything about Paul, his trouble was not light and it did not feel momentary, but he had a different perspective. He said, our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He had a different perspective on suffering. He had a different perspective. In other words, you can lose your external health and wealth in this life and gain inner health and wealth and still have a positive outlook and a faith-filled life. Yet there's a lot of people, if they lose their external health, if they lose their external wealth, it shakes them to the core. I love St. Teresa of Avila. One of the things I put in your message note is a quote from her. She says, in light of heaven, in light of heaven. So when you have a perspective of eternity, a perspective of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than, look at this, one night in an inconvenient hotel. 500 years of the worst suffering on earth the worst abuse, the worst trauma, the, the, the most unbelievable torment or agony any human being could ever go through will be wiped away from one kiss 
of Jesus the day you enter into eternity. It's all about perspective. Yes, life is brutal. Yes, there's tragedy in life. Yes, we need to fight for justice. But in light of eternity, the worst tragedy you will ever deal with on life is nothing compared to the first kiss you receive when Jesus welcomes you into heaven and says, my good and faithful servant, welcome home. Remember what suffering produces? It says you'll become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let me give you four areas where suffering will help you not to lack in, help you to become mature and complete. Humility. Humility. One of the keys to Christianity is humility. You have to be humble to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Suffering allows a humility in our life that we would not have without suffering. Paul says, I thank God for the thorn in my flesh because without it, I would get a puffed up head. I would become very arrogant and prideful in who I am. Freedom. Suffering helps you really understand freedom. Think about it like this. When you suffer, you lose something in your life that you thought you had to have. Money, health, a relationship. And what suffering does is it gives you real freedom because you realize that thing that you thought you had to have, you can actually live without it. Compassion. When you suffer, you become more understanding and empathetic to others. Faith. Suffering produces faith. When you go through suffering, you have to answer a question. Are you going to run away and get bitter and angry at God? Or are you going to trust God when you go through suffering? It's as almost as if God asks you when you suffer, did you join Christianity for me to serve you? Or did you join Christianity so that you could serve me? I love the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Again, this phrase, consider it pure joy. The author of Hebrews puts it like this, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners. He endured suffering so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Suffering produces maturity. It helps you become complete and not lacking anything. Here's the next thing, and it's connected to the first. Suffering produces wisdom. When you suffer, it produces wisdom in your life when you have the right perspective. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, a lot of people, when they look at James 1 verse 5, they think this is talking about wisdom in general, like the wisdom of Proverbs or just biblical wisdom, biblical principles of life. But if you look at the context before and after, it, he sandwiches this verse of wisdom in between passages on suffering. You see, this is not wisdom in general. This is wisdom specifically for suffering. In other words, when I suffer, how do I conform my life to the reality of the suffering that I'm facing? That's wisdom. You see, the way we do it in the world is instead of conforming my life to the reality of the suffering that I'm going through, I want to conform the reality of the suffering to the ideal of my life, which is technique. See, so many of us, we want technique, not wisdom, but technique will not help you deal with suffering. Wisdom helps you go through Suffering. Now, I want to be sensitive about what I'm going to say because a lot of the suffering that people have been through is very traumatic and there's wounds and there's hurts and there's areas of your heart and your life that you need to be healed from. But let me say it like this. What makes an event terrible is not the actual event, but it's how we interpret the event. That's why two people can go through the very same thing 
and it could be absolutely horrible, it could be absolutely traumatic, it could be tragedy, it could be a terrible form of abuse, and one of the people, one of the persons will absolutely be crippled by it emotionally for the rest of their life, and the other person will heal and overcome it and actually move on with their life. Why? The way they interpret the event. Not that the person who heals and moves on diminishes the event or lives in any type of denial or delusion. They just see that in this event, God still has the ability to heal me of the trauma, and I can continue to live. Let me give you a very basic example. It's Room 101, the famous analogy of Room 101. You take a couple on their honeymoon, and you show them Room 101. This is, this is your hotel Honeymoon night, room 101, the very first night, and the bride looks at the room and she says, this is terrible, this is horrible, I wouldn't stay in here, this is not at all what I imagine on my honeymoon night, because it's the quality of a Hampton Inn or, or some business traveler hotel, but you take a guy, same room, room 101, who's been in prison for 20 years, and it's his first night of freedom, first night out of prison, and you show him room 101. He looks at the room, and you ask him, what do you think? It's amazing. This is incredible. I can't wait. Same room, different interpretation. You see, it's how you interpret. It's the wisdom. Do you have the wisdom of this world inside of you, or do you have the wisdom of God inside. If you have the wisdom of the world inside of you, it's going to be incredibly hard to deal with suffering in life. And let me give you three areas where, where so many of us, without even knowing it, because it's just the culture we live in, we buy into the wisdom of this world, and it makes it very difficult for us to deal with suffering. The first is we live in the technology age. It's the wisdom of this world. We are in charge. We have technology we can create. We are, we are an advanced society. We have scientific discoveries. So if something goes wrong, it's the government's fault. It's the doctor's fault. We're going to sue because we, that should have never happened with the science and the technology we have because we are in charge. You see, 30, 40 years ago, if, if, if a child was born in a hospital and there was complication, the parents never thought about suing the hospital. Yet in the world we live in today, if there's any complications upon birth, the first thought so many people have is we're going to sue because these complications should have never happened. Can I say, look, technology has improved the quality of our life, but one thing all of the technology in the world has not been able to do is decrease the death rate at all. The death rate today is the same as it's always been. There's one death, but for every person alive. So we're not gods, even with all of our technology, yet we play God. Another, another wisdom of the world that we buy into is we live in a sin-forgetful age. We live in a sin-forgetful age. We, and here's how we've done it. We've taken away the moral model of life, and what we've done is we've established a medical model for life. For example, somebody is dealing with bitterness. They've been wrong. They've been hurt. Uh, somebody has betrayed them, and they're incredibly bitter in their heart. They've got all this bitterness in their heart. What do they say when you ask them how they feel? Here's how they address it. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. See, here's the problem. What they're doing is they're giving a medical response to a moral problem. See, this is what we've done. It would be as if I went to the doctor and I had a knife, and I'm stabbing myself in the leg over and over and over, and I'm telling the doctor, my leg hurts. The doctor would say, that's not actually your problem. You see, when we say I'm hurting over bitterness, that's not actually our problem. 
The reality is it's a moral issue. God never created the human heart to live with bitterness, and God gave us through his word every mechanism to let go of bitterness, to be able to forgive and move on in our life. And yet 90% of Americans, this is laughable, 90% of Americans today believe that they show the kind of love in life that would make our world a better place. 90%. Think that they live and exhibit and, and, and demonstrate the type of love that would make the world a better place. Have you watched the news lately? We are living in a sin-forgetful society. We believe the universe owes us a good life because we are good. And every time I see the book, uh, when bad things happen to good people, I always have to stop and check it out to make sure it's never actually happened. Because here's the truth. There's never been a bad thing happen to a good person. You see, it's based on this assumption that we deserve a better life than we have. Show me the evidence. Prove that to me. Show me how we deserve a better life than we actually have. And how do you even define who's good and who's not good? You see, it's built on a faulty premise, and it's one of the reasons why we struggle with suffering today is because we're sin forgetful. And then finally, we live in a secular age. A secular age. Secular comes from the Latin root of now or my life or it has to happen in this age. I need all of my happiness to happen here and now because this world is all there is. And if I don't get it now, I'm not going to get it. So I'm going to forget everything else and go after what I want because that's all that's important. You see, the answer to the world's wisdom is biblical wisdom. Let me give you two keys to biblical wisdom and then we've got to move on. First, If you want to be wise according to the Bible, you have to first understand that you're a fool. Read the book of Proverbs. You want to know a fool? A fool is somebody who thinks they're wise. You want to know who's wise? A wise is somebody who thinks they're a fool. That's how it works. You see, if you think you know how the world should work if you were in charge, then when suffering comes, it crushes you emotionally because you are proud and you live in pride. The second Biblical wisdom we've got to get a hold of is the world is temporary. Suffering is not our lot in life. We come from a golden era, the Garden of Eden, and if we trust God, we're going to go back to a a time and an age very much like the Garden of Eden when everything's going to be perfect. Paul goes on in verse 6. He says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. You must not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let me help you with this quickly. He says you should not doubt. Not doubting, this is not psychological uncertainty because not doubting is defined as being double-minded, di-psychos in the Greek, di-divided psychos, the mind. In other words, we have a divided mind or divided loyalties. This is why we struggle in suffering. We have divided loyalties. Yes, we're loyal to God. We're loyal to God because we're here. You would not be watching this Book of James series right now if you didn't have a part of your heart that is loyal to God. But the problem is we're dipsychos. We're not just loyal to God. We're also loyal to other things. Look, if you're living for a relationship in your life and you lose that relationship, you almost feel godless for a moment because your anchor is gone. If you're living for money and money is gone, you almost feel at a loss in your relationship with God. Jesus said, don't build a house on the sand, build it on the rock. Sand is making a foundation 
in life of anything other than Jesus Christ. Now, here's what most of us do, because I don't, I don't believe any Christian goes out there to willfully build their house on sand. But what I think many of us do is we don't build our house completely on the rock, but we also don't build our house completely on the sand. So in other words, I'm going to trust God, but I'm also going to trust my 401k. Because, you know, if God doesn't come through, at least I have my 401k. I'm going to hedge my bets, in other words. And there's nothing wrong with retirement and savings. You just can't put your trust in those things. And then we don't have time to do it. Uh, verses 9 to 11, Paul goes on to describe. At the very beginning, he says, uh, count it pure joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. Well, he begins to list some of those trials in 9 to 11. Somebody who experiences poverty, somebody who experiences wealth. Those are both trials. Getting rich and getting poor are both trials of our faith. Because the greatest trouble in life is having no trouble at all. Because with no trouble, you have no suffering and you have no ability to mature in your faith. So let's move on. Here's the next point. The benefits of suffering are optional. The benefits of suffering are optional. Yes, God wants to make you mature and complete, not lacking anything, but that's not guaranteed. You have to choose. Verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What he is saying is most of the time suffering does not make us better, it makes us worse. You see, the assumption is not, not all of us can do this. The assumption is most of us get bitter at God when we suffer. We blame God. Why would God allow this? Why would God do this? I was serving Him faithfully. I was living for Him. I was going to church. I was on the dream team. I was tithing. How could God allow this to happen to me? Verse 13, when tempted, nobody should say, God is tempting me. See, they're blaming God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Hold on to that word, evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's talking about adultery. It's the metaphor of adultery. When you have an adulterous relationship, that adulterous relationship can produce offspring, and that offspring oftentimes creates a lot of pain and heartache in the life. Now, this, this phrase, over-desire, or, or, or evil desire, is the way the Bible, or the way the translators write it here, evil desire. It comes from the Greek word epitumia, epitumia, and the better translation for epi is not evil, it's over. It's not an evil desire, it's an over-desire. You see, when you have an over-desire, it gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. So I want to make this clear. This is not talking just about evil desires. It's talking about any desire, any desire that you love more than God becomes an over-desire in your life. Let me be very honest for a moment here in North County, and this is going to be hard for some of you to hear. Here in North County, there's a lot of people who have Epitumia, they have an over-desire for their children. There's nothing wrong with having a desire for your children, to love and care for your children, but there are many people today who have an over-desire for their children. They have a desire for their children that is greater than their desire for God. They actually put their children above God. And when you have an over-desire, it gives birth to sin, and that sin will give birth to death in your life. And that's why many couples who have an over-desire for their children, you watch it play out, it pulls them away from God, there's all sorts of complications, and oftentimes they are divorced over and over and over, all because of something good 
that became an over-desire. You see, lust is not wanting bad things. Lust is wanting anything badly. That's what real lust is. Now, let me make this very simple for you to understand. An over-desire. If your boss comes to you, because we're talking about sin here and sin giving birth to death in your life. If your boss comes to you and your boss says, I want you to lie, and if you don't lie to this customer, then I'm going to fire you. You cannot say that you sin, but you didn't want to sin. You can't say, my boss made me sin. My boss made me lie. No, what happened was you had an over-desire to keep your job more than you had an over-desire for doing what was right. You can't say anybody made you do that, and that's what James is saying. So when you fall away from God because of suffering, it's because you had an over-desire for something else. So what is the remedy to this spiritual adultery that's being talked about here? Well, the remedy for any over-desire is a passionate love for Jesus. It's to make Jesus our number one desire in our heart, in our life. How? The last point, the key to suffering is grace. Grace is what in our heart produces an overwhelming desire for Jesus. You can't force yourself to love Jesus more. In fact, John puts it like this. We love him because he first loved us. So if you don't receive his grace and his love for you, you don't have the ability to love him back. It all starts with grace. Look at verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift... A gift is not something you earn. A gift is something you receive by grace. Every good, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. James is saying it all goes back to grace. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth. That word birth is huge in this chapter. It seems small and we gloss over it and we miss it oftentimes. But if you miss what the word birth is applying, you're going to miss the power for this entire book. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits. Jesus was the first fruit. We are in Christ of all he created. Now remember, the wisdom, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. That's what he said earlier on. Wisdom is a gift that allows you to endure suffering so that you can become mature, complete, not lacking anything. And then in verse 17, he says, every Good and perfect gift is from above. If you lack wisdom, ask God, because God will give you the gift of wisdom to anybody who asks. So if you need wisdom for suffering so that you can become mature and complete, you ask God, because God gives every good and every perfect gift comes from God. How do we get it? Grace. Grace. We don't earn it. It's a gift. He gives it to us because Jesus earned it on our behalf. But then I want want you to look at verse 18 as we close. He gives you the power to use it. What is the power to use it? What's the power to do everything in this book? Birth. Birth. We are born again into Christianity. It's talking about a spiritual regeneration that God does inside of us. It's the new covenant. Hebrews 8, God says, I will take my law and I will write it on your heart so that it becomes your desire. James is saying, if you have not been born again, if you have not experienced spiritual birth, you're not going to be able to do anything I'm talking about in this letter. 
without being born again, you're going to turn the book of James into a bunch of techniques, a bunch of principles. It's going to become a religion. It's going to be cold and hard and a list of to-dos that is going to pull you away from God. He says everything in this book happens because we have been born by the Spirit of truth. It says that born-again Christianity is the only kind of Christianity. Why? Because it becomes alive in you. It becomes alive in you. It's, it's not just an experience or a set of rules. It becomes active inside of you. It changes your desires. It changes your heart. And it all starts with Jesus. So what we have to do to overcome any over-desire in our life, no matter what the over-desire is, and, and oftentimes our over-desires are not for sinful things or evil things. Our over-desires are for good things. We have to make Jesus first. We've got to fall completely in love with Jesus because of His grace and what He did on our behalf. And we allow ourselves, this is what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's no other way to do Christianity without being born again. And that's where James starts. He says it happens through birth. When you are born, all of a sudden, you become a new creation. You're born as a new person. Your heart begins to be restored and regenerated through the Spirit of God that then gives you the power and desire to follow out everything He has for you. I know I shared a lot with you tonight. Uh, honestly, this is five messages I tried to do my best to kind of give you an overview of, but we're going to dig into it a little bit more in the Q&A. But let me just pray for you quickly. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I pray that this message would land in our heart where it needs to land. As we dig through James and as we meditate on this and as we allow your word to penetrate our heart, God, we would see that it all starts by getting wisdom which you give by grace. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father. You give it by grace. And then, Lord, the power is because we're born again. We've been born under your spirit of truth. We've become a new person. There's a regeneration that takes place from the inside out that gives us the ability and desire to live the life that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, really, really powerful. As you said, there is a lot to unpack here. There's a lot in this. And so uh, let's just get into it. Um, the question that I have here is uh, you, 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 uh, you made this reference to us knowing and understanding that this world is temporary, and that's part of the biblical wisdom. And so for those of us that are here in, in North County and a part of this culture where we do like to take control and we do like to have things happen right here and right now, how do we reconcile the, uh, the difference between living for God, knowing that this is temporary, uh, versus you know, just kind of giving up and forsaking all ambition because we don't quite know which way to go? Yeah, I mean, th that is a challenge as a human being because we're all human with human emotions. And Jesus understood this to be the truth. And the disciples struggle with it over and over and over. Jesus was always having to refocus their eyes on the eternal. And, and really, I think, it, I think it just becomes a, a spiritual discipline of daily recognizing that this world is not our home. And that, uh, you know, like we used to say growing up that this person is so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Mm -hmm. and, and what they meant was their heads in the clouds that they're totally useless on earth as a Christian. But what you discover is the opposite's actually true. The more heavenly minded you become, the more passionate you are 
for your life on earth. Because Paul says we have to run this race for the prize. He's not talking about salvation in context because Paul was a preacher of grace. Paul would have never equated salvation to our effort. Mm -hmm. Salvation was always the effort of Jesus. So Paul was saying you need to run for rewards. We are going to be rewarded. In fact, Jesus is so excited about rewards that the Bible says he doesn't even wait till we get to heaven, that he's bringing his rewards with him. Like that's one of the first things he's going to do is reward us for the life that we lived, the race that we ran. And so we have to understand every day that I'm living for rewards, that I'm running for rewards. This is not salvation, and this is not works, because it's grace that empowers me to do the works, to live my life for the rewards that Jesus has. But what happens there is so much more important than what happens here. The analogy I like to use uh, is send it ahead. Like if I'm, if I'm moving, you know, we're packing up our house and we're moving and I've got this beautiful dining table, very expensive dining table in my house and we're moving to Florida and we're moving for good. We're never coming back to this house again. And the movers get to the dining table and they start to pack it up and I said, no, 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 don't touch that. That's way too nice, way too expensive. Just, just don't leave it there. And the movers are looking at me like, wait a second, aren't you moving to Florida? Yes. You, you, you're not going to come back? No. So why do you want to leave it here? Why don't you send it ahead? Like, you're not going to be able to enjoy it here. Send it ahead. Whatever I have in my possession when I die, I lose. But I have an ability to send it ahead where I'm actually going to be living a lot longer. That, that's through my talents. It's through my efforts. It's through my treasure. It's through my money. It's, it's through everything. Mm-hmm. So I've got to live my life every day where I'm impacting eternity. I'm doing things to make an eternal difference. And it's just, it's an attitude. It's a mentality that as a follower of Christ, it's not easy because I get pulled out of it all the time. I start getting caught up in the here and now. That's why you got to lift your eyes. Lift your eyes and realize, wait a second, this world's not my home. It's not my home. Because again, if your eyes are on earth, suffering is going to be incredibly difficult to endure. But if your eyes are on heaven, you can endure suffering. You can endure suffering because you realize how, as Paul said, it's light and momentary. What doesn't feel light doesn't feel momentary. Well, if my eyes are on heaven... With a clean perspective, it is light and momentary. Okay. And so then, is it, is it safe to say that, just, just making sure that, you know, we understand this, right? Is it safe to say that when we look up to heaven, when we are heavenly focused, it changes the direction of our ambition. It changes the way that we do things in this world, so to speak, so that, as you said, we're, we're paying it forward. We're, we're doing something that is going to be in heaven. Absolutely, because you live with this filter of what's going to pass what we call the fire test. Paul, okay. Paul in Corinthians talks about a fire test. Anything we build or do on earth, if it survives the fire, then we're rewarded for that. If it does not survive the fire, we're not rewarded for it. Well, what is the only thing that's going to survive the fire? People, souls, what we did for the gospel, what we did to advance the kingdom. That's the only thing that's going to survive. The only thing you're going to bring with you to heaven are people. You're not bringing your car, you're not bringing your house, you're not bringing your purse, you're not bringing any designer clothes, you're not bringing any of that with you to heaven. The only thing that goes with you to heaven is people. So there's a lot of charity on earth today, there's a lot of nonprofits on earth today. The question is, when I give money to a charity, is it getting people to heaven or is it a charity, that, charity that's you know, doing a little bit on earth but it really doesn't make an eternal difference? And so, so, so with every, every effort of my life, I have to ask myself, am I making an eternal difference with my life? 
Powerful, powerful, powerful. And again, something that we really need to know and something we really need to understand just living in Southern California in general. Uh, there was something else that you said that, that, that struck me that I think that we should uh, discuss. You mentioned that trials can either be good or bad, and the analogy that you used was, was monetary. Yeah. If you're, if you're poor, that's a trial, and if you're rich, that's a trial. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, I didn't have time to read the scriptures, but let me read it to you. Believers in humble circumstances. Many commentators mean this person lost everything. They wound up in poverty. Maybe it was the Great Depression. Maybe it was a, a financial crisis. Believers in humble circumstances, that's a trial. You lose everything. You lose all your money. You lose all your wealth. That's a trial. That's suffering. Mm. Ought to take pride in their high position. So even though I lose all my earthly possessions, I still have my heavenly possessions. So I don't need to fall apart emotionally through this trial because my reward is in heaven. And then it says, but the rich, which is just as much a, a trial. Anyone that knows a rich person knows it's just as hard to be rich as it is to be poor. It doesn't make being a Christian any easier. It doesn't make life any easier. It's actually in a lot of ways harder. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. What is their humiliation? It's the fact that it goes on to say, since they will pass away like a wild flower. It doesn't matter how rich and wealthy you are, two generations down the road, no one's going to remember your name. And that's, that's, it's, it's and, just... and that's the humiliation is to know that I'm mortal, to know that my money can't buy immortality. My money can't, can't, can't buy significance or legacy or, or anything like that. I'm going to pass away like a wild flower and people are going to forget my name. So there's more to my life than my money. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So being poor, being rich are both trials. Huge. And that's really one of the biggest reasons why we all want to be famous, why we all want to be rich, because yeah. we think that earns for us some sort of significance and immortality, so to speak. Yeah, what, what do they say in, uh, I think it was that Nicole Kidman movie about the news, if it doesn't happen on TV, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, 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 and we think, okay, if it doesn't happen on Instagram, it doesn't happen. If it doesn't, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody takes a photo and puts it on Instagram, did the tree fall in the forest? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the life that we live in. But what we don't realize is if even if nobody sees it, the most important person is still seeing it. Mm. We are always living before an audience. And the audience we live before is the most important audience anyone could ever live before, try to please or try to live for, and that's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So just because the masses don't see what I do, it doesn't matter. He sees what I do. Huge. And so... That, that takes me to another question, which is, uh, which is really important. And it's, it's not just for us, but it's also for our children. Because yeah. as you mentioned, you know, we are in this technology age and we are in this time period uh, where we think that we are in control. And by and large, the world is teaching us that and teaching our children that. Yeah. And so uh, the question that I have here is our children are inundated with the world of subjective morality and selfish fulfillment where even a little bit of suffering is viewed as traumatic and deserving of special attention and personal fulfillment. How do we prepare our children to suffer a fallen world with a thankful and steadfast heart? I think it's modeling to them. You know, I think what many Oof. parents do is when we suffer, we hide it from our children. 
We want to appear strong to our children. We don't want our children to see when we're going through trials and when we're going through hard times, and we want to shield them from feeling it. And I think we fail them. They need to see us go through hard times and hold on to our faith because they're going to go through hard times. And I think the whole helicopter parent mentality where we've got to rescue our children from everything. You know, it's like, uh, I'm not going to say I'm the greatest parent in the world, but when my three-year-old's at the playground and, and he falls down and is crying and there's no blood and, and, and it's not like a life-threatening injury, I'm not going to run across the field to scoop him up real quick. Oh, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. I want him to feel that for a moment, not to be cruel as a parent, but I want to see, I want, I want him to learn how to realize that I'm going to get bumps and bruises in life and I can get up and I can keep going. It doesn't have to cripple me. I, I don't have to stay down. I, I can get back up. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sensitive and I try, to, I try to feel it out and I make sure that there's a time where I need to go pick him up and comfort him. But there are times where I, I want him to feel it a little bit, not out of cruelty, but out of training. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's tough. Well, discipline is creating uncomfortable situations for your children. But that's how they learn. And, and, and the person who, who withholds discipline from their child sets them up for failure. It's what the book of Proverbs says. Mm. And so I tell my son when he's in trouble, uh, this is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. <laughs> you just tell him straight out, huh? In fact, it's not going to hurt me at all, but this is going to make you very uncomfortable. And you're not going to like the way this makes you feel. Because again, it's, it's, he's got to connect his behavior to his, his, you know, his behavior affects his feelings. I don't ever want to say, well, that makes daddy really sad when you do that. Well, I don't want to emotionally control him or abuse him. I don't want him to live his life for, you know, my emotional satisfaction. You know, so I'm not going to put that on my son. So I never say, well, that makes daddy really happy when you do that, or that makes daddy really sad when you do that. I simply say, how do you feel when you do that? Happy, that's awesome. Buddy, you're not going to like the way this makes you feel. You're, you're, it's not going to make you feel good at all. But it's always his feelings for his behavior. Well, again, hard message for us to hear, but definitely powerful, definitely what we need, and definitely uh, that, that path to biblical wisdom that, uh, that really shows how grace needs to take place in our life and how we need to grab hold of grace. And so I really, I really thank you for this. Uh, what I've learned from today, what it sounds like you're saying to sum it all up, is that we are going to suffer. And the greatest thing that we can do in our suffering is turn to God and ask God how he wants us to change in the middle of that suffering so that we can persevere, so that we can become the people that the Lord is calling us to be. And most importantly, we need to have that heavenly focus and know that any suffering that we're enduring is basically the blink of an eye and we're going to be in heaven and everything's going to be all right. Is that it? Okay. Thank you, Greg, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us online. Thank you to our live studio audience being here and adding life to the, uh, <laughs> to the session here. Again, we're going to be back next Wednesday to dive into week three of the book of James with our pastor, Aaron. I really appreciate you being here. I hope you enjoyed the message, and see you next week. <laughs>